Now, this is not directed at you because you all are here, but it's, it's for me one of the most baffling things in all of churchdom is that on daylight savings time, when you lose an hour, you always think, well, everybody will show up a second service. Never happens. I, I don't know what happens. Seriously, it's just, it's the way it is. And actually, when you gain an hour, church's attendance goes down too. No, no reason at all. It's just like, hey, things changed. I don't know. I can't even function today. So, but y'all are here. So you are the functional people in our community. Well done, you. Uh, something is coming up which will not surprise you. Easter will be coming up in April, the end of April. But what is coming is a little bit differently is how we're doing it at Warehouse this year. If you have never been at Warehouse at Easter time, we always have two components to it that we think are, are critical. And we've added a third. But for Easter, it's a, for us, it's a weekend because it begins on Friday night with our Tenebrae service. And if you've not been to a Tenebrae service, you really need to, to, uh, to come to this. This is my favorite uh, event service we do all year, a highly creative look at the seven words of Christ on the cross. And what that means is we have recorded throughout the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, seven things that he says while he's hanging on the cross dying. And as we, we go through those, with every one of those words or statements being done with an original piece of uh, music, an original piece of art, an original spoken word, uh, and it's a, it's a fabulous evening. What we've added this year is we, we normally don't have anything for children whatsoever. It's a, you come in and the service ends and we all walk out. But we've added a component for children up in a kid's warehouse, which will allow them to begin the process of Friday night through Sunday, which Easter is not, a, you cannot understand Sunday morning of Easter without Friday night. And so if I say that, if you go, huh, come Friday night. You'll see the death and the resurrection of Christ throughout the entire weekend. Friday night's the Tenebrae service. Really, don't miss it. Saturday night, we're going to have an, a gallery event in conjunction with Artworks 945, which is um, out of uh, Urban, uh, Urban Ministry Center. It's some very, very talented uh, homeless artists who will be showing their work here in our, our gallery space. And we've had our gallery closed down from shows for a while since we went through the construction renovation process. And this will be the first gallery show since then. We'll also have a, some live music going on on the uh, new stage in the coffee room. It'll be a very fun event. And uh, I encourage you to be there and bring friends out for that. And then Sunday morning, we'll have our uh, Easter service. The biggest change about our Easter service this year, much like we did, I think it was five years ago, we'll be baptizing a number of people on Easter Sunday morning. And historically, this was how Easter worked. In the, in the early church, Easter Sunday is when people were baptized. Baptism did not happen in the early church like it happens... Uh, mm, oh, how do I say it? Baptism didn't happen as it does in the church today, which is that the baptism was taken so seriously that essentially at one time a year, churches baptized people and it was expressing their desire to commit their lives to Christ. Baptism was a serious thing. It could get you killed in the earliest church. And so on Easter Sunday, commemorating the resurrection of the dead, people came before the community and said, I am in. I believe Jesus is my Savior, and they were baptized. On Easter Sunday, we'll be baptizing a number of people. It'll be a powerful day. I encourage you to be there Friday, Saturday, Sunday, one or all three. If you have questions, you can talk to Ennis about it. This morning, we continue our series, Struck. What happens when you're struck by a thought that you didn't expect? And the lament song today is by Damien Rice, and he, the, the history of it, he was asked to write a song about uh, Chinese abuse of Tibet. And um, in, in writing that song and the, in the 
evils that he saw, he got to the end of it and was struck by this thought. He didn't change his political views, but what he saw is all the things that he was accusing others of, rightly, were true of him. And so the song changed for him to the lament, what if I'm wrong? What if I have been going one way, thinking one thing, and I'm actually the one who's wrong? Welcome to Warehouse. Some thoughts that we're struck with are a little harder. That's one of them. What if I'm wrong? That's a brave question. A question that perhaps we ask too little because we can't afford to. It's difficult to ask the question, what if I'm wrong, when if I'm wrong, it means the destruction of something. It's difficult to ask what if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong says something about me that I don't know how it can be mended. It's a brave question to ask. It gets braver when the question, what if I'm wrong, focuses at the very core of who we are. What if something at the foundation, what if that's wrong? Because if that's the case, then everything I've acted on, everything I've done will be flawed. There's a movie a, a number of years back. It's a very powerful movie. I would not call it fun. I would call it good. Memento. And in the movie Memento, it's a... And if you've seen the movie, you realize I'm butchering it. Go with me, okay? But it's a story of a guy with extreme short-term memory loss. And so what he has done, you, you see it unfold as he has his body tattooed with markers. Those markers define what's true in his life. And so he uses them to figure out what he's supposed to do. And you know, watch him as he wakes in the morning and as he looks and he, he remembers. Or now he remembers. He knows this is my life. These are the markers. These that guide me. These are the core truths. And those core truths have driven him to have a certain mission, a certain ambition, something he's trying to do in his life. It steers everything. Every action that he does. And then in a stunning and difficult plot twist, he discovers that one of the core markers is wrong, planted by someone who lied to him to get them to do their bidding. And so he doesn't look at it and go, oh, hey, had that one wrong, <coughs> struck with this stunning notion that a core belief, a core foundational truth, which has driven my actions, was wrong, and so I've lived completely wrong. Sometimes we look at our lives and we do some actions and we think, oh, that action was probably wrong. I need to not do that again. When it comes to core beliefs, things that are at the center of who we are, they don't affect an action or two. They affect everything. Last week, we dealt with a question through Ricky Gervais of, what if there is a God? What if there's not a God? He had to wrestle with that question. In doing so, that sort of question is one of those you can go, hmm, I wonder. And you can sort of ponder that. Today is not a ponder. What if I've gone completely the wrong direction? What if one of my core beliefs is flawed? What do I do when that happens? I will say only this. When that happens... Hmm, 
is probably not the response. The story we're going to look at is uh, about a guy named Paul. For those of you who've been in church at all, you have heard of Paul. He wrote much of the New Testament. He was one of the earliest and most profoundly influential church leaders. And the story of Paul's conversion is a story of him discovering he had gone in the absolutely wrong direction. And just so you get a sense of what direction he was going in, we're going to go back and look at a couple of different passages in the book of Acts, which is the story, the history of the early church. And in the passage we're going to look at now, it begins in the end of Acts chapter 7 and goes into Acts chapter 8, and this is what's happening. Stephen, who by all appearances was a good guy, Stephen was awesome, and uh, he was being killed because when the early church was founded, those in authority, those in power, believed it was dangerous. They believed it was dangerous to their position in the world, and so it needed to be stamped out. Some believed it was dangerous just politically. It was a power thing. It could cause unrest, and they didn't need that because the Roman Empire tended to crush unrest. They didn't like unrest. They crushed it, and then they established peace. So some thought it was just a political thing. For others, it was a religious thing, a spiritual thing. They believed that Christianity was dangerous because it thought this, taught this crazy notion of grace, that people could be forgiven for their actions, that it wasn't about acting correctly all the time. It wasn't about following the rules, but in a strange way, it was about discovering that you couldn't follow the rules and needed forgiveness and needed a savior. This was viewed as dangerous, so dangerous that the early church was persecuted. And one of the earliest persecutions was a guy named Stephen, who again, decent human being, Stephen is being killed. As he's being killed, they were stoning him, which is not the way you want to go. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. See, again, good guy. When he had said this, he fell asleep, died, euphemism. And Saul approved of their killing him. Saul will become Paul. As he watches Stephen be put to death for what he believes and seek to forgive those who are killing them, Saul went, absolutely. Hand me a stone. Sometimes the things we want, the vengeance we want to take, the actions we want to, we want to see happen to someone, when they actually happen, we feel regret and remorse. And while we may have approved it at some level, it sort of quells our zeal. It didn't for Paul. It amped it up. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's okay. It'll work out. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He watched Stephen die and he said, about time, let's crank it up. And so he begins a mission in Jerusalem of trying to stamp out the church. And then he takes it a step farther. Well, a chapter later, we have the story of Paul going to the high priest and saying, look, here's, here's the deal. This thing has spread. It's gone to other places. It's like a weed. Let me go exterminate it. Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, the way was the earliest way that Christianity was referred to because Jesus is saying, I am the way. 
uh, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners. Now, I mean, you've got to get that phrase. He said, look, let me go there. Whether it's men or women, I don't care. Let me go. I'll bring them back. We'll put them in jail. Then we can stone them. Plan? Great. He might take them back to Jerusalem. This was Paul's mentality. Now, I, w- I want you to understand something. I believe Paul believed he was doing the right thing. It doesn't sound like it on the surface of it. But why was this man who eventually ended up leading the church and being a, the most powerful advocate for grace of that time, why was he seeking to exterminate people who were teaching about Jesus? Why do we passionately pursue things that we are absolutely wrong about? Because we have a core belief. Something we hold to be true. You know, in, in studies on persuasion, it goes through three different levels. Actions are the easiest to persuade people of, to change. Get them to change an action for the moment. One action. Attitudes are tougher. Attitudes are people's predisposed notion towards something. Beliefs are the hardest. Beliefs drive everything. Beliefs are those things inside us which are our core values which we hold and they determine what our attitude is toward things and what our actions will be. Paul believed grace was dangerous. He believed that the way to God and the right way to live was to follow the rules strictly. He believed those who sought to not follow the rules rigidly were slackers who would not be righteous before God and would cause chaos in the community, in the city, and in the nation. Paul believed grace was dangerous. Living the right way, not doing the wrong thing, was the only way to live. And so, his attitude toward the early church was, they're dangerous. Because they're teaching a notion, if this catches on, all hell's going to break out. Because people will start thinking, if they do the wrong thing, God will be okay with them. He might actually even forgive them. Then what happens? And so, his actions were eliminated. Sometimes actions seem extreme until you take them back to their core. Paul's core beliefs drove his actions. How can we passionately pursue the wrong thing? Because our core belief, our foundation is flawed. When the foundation is flawed, you will act according to it and your actions will be flawed. What do we do when we discover that a foundational belief is wrong? Well, let's watch Paul deal with that, and then we'll ask how we deal with that. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Eerie moment, I would think. I want to hear the inflection in this, but on our screen it says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm thinking it was a little more intense than that. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul had the appropriate response. They stood there speechless, mouth agape. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. 
Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So, he's going to put people in jail, and if all goes well, we can get him killed. On the way, he is stopped and struck with a thought, a thought from God, Paul, you're completely wrong. This is not dangerous. You believe that your actions for me are actually persecuting me. You believe that your actions that are righteous are completely flawed. Saul, you don't need a little fine-tuning. Your life is broken entirely. You're completely and irrevocably flawed in this notion, and it has to change. So, three-day period. See, we'll end up seeing him act a certain way, but we've got a three-day period. What do you do when you're struck with the notion that your core belief, something deep foundational, is flawed? He has three days to think about that. And in those three days, all sorts of things had to go through his head. Because see, here's what he's going to, if he's going to do anything about this, this is what's going to have to happen. He's going to have to look at the last several years of his life anyway, at the last few months, certainly, and face what he has done. Does the scene of Stephen flash through his head? I think so. He's going to have to look at that and see himself clapping. And I know he probably wasn't clapping, but, you know, go with me, metaphorically. In his heart, he was clapping. He's going to have to see himself approving of that and deal with this notion. I stood by and watched a man be killed, and I thought it was for the sake of God, and God is telling me that was completely opposite. You simply watched and approved an innocent man being killed, and that fueled you to go kill other people. He has to deal with that. See, that's not the moment. It's not a Ricky Gervais moment where you go, hmm, that's an interesting thought. I, I should consider that. Let's talk to some people. Let's gather with some friends, and let's have a discussion about whether or not it's okay to kill people who believe in grace. He's going to have to deal with the stunning notion that believing his actions were for the sake of God were actually just horribly and completely wrong. What do you do when you discover that you're absolutely wrong and you've been going in the wrong direction? You don't ponder. You have to make a decision to completely change. It's what happens. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord. Again, I think the inflection's wrong in these things. Yes, Lord, he answered. Yes, like, hey, good to hear from you. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man. We should name something Straight Street. Don't you like that? I think that's really, anyway. On Straight Street, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, so that's Paul's dealing with this. He's wrestling right now, okay? In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands in him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered. He's like, excuse me, I just didn't want to clarify something. I've heard many reports about this man, all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest hold, call on your name. He's like, God, okay, I think there might be a mistake. I'm not sure if you're aware, but he's bad. We, we, no, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to him. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. The inflection, I think, comes through in that one. 
This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I, I, honestly, I don't get that verse, by the way. I don't, we can talk about that later. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you in the road as you were coming here. I just thought that was interesting, the clarification. Lord, you know the one who appeared to you in the road. <laughs> has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. So, after three days of fasting and of praying and wrestling with the notion, what if I'm completely wrong? Saul becomes Paul and completely changes his course. How do I know that? Because a little phrase, and he was baptized. As I said earlier, in that culture and in that time, to say, I will be baptized, puts you in line to be persecuted by people like Saul for believing in the way. He put his life on the line and essentially said, okay, baptism means, God, I acknowledge that I'm wrong. It's the hardest part about Christianity, seriously. I acknowledge that I'm wrong. Not a little. I believe the wrong thing. I have walked the wrong path. I have not honored you, honored others around me, or in truth, honor the image that you made me to be. I'm wrong. I need not some fine-tuning in my life. I need forgiveness, complete. I ask you to, and baptism metaphorically does this with water, I ask you to wash away all of my sin. Forgive me. And let me start anew with you. Some thoughts require repentance, not pondering. They require us to look at our life and say, not, I should get, some, get to work on that, but I'm sorry. I need to completely turn away from this. Paul does. I'm struck by, t- and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know why I say struck so often in this series. I don't mean to. I'm not trying to use a pun, but I was struck by two thoughts as I went through these passages. Number one is how passionately we can pursue that which is wrong. That really that really hits me. <laughs> how passionately we can pursue the wrong thing. With all our zeal, we can go after something. And we do that when a core belief is off. What I was also struck by is how passionately God pursues us to bring his grace to us. See, here is what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with the reality that, okay, what if I'm completely wrong? What if I have killed innocent people? What if I've thrown people in jail who should not have been thrown in jail? What if I did that? And so doing that, I actually hampered the goodness of God moving into the world? What if I have stood in the way of people's lives becoming better? What if I've been a roadblock to people's happiness and well-being? In his own system, where does that put him? He's got nothing. In his own system, in Paul's own system, when he has to address the question, what if I'm wrong and I am, he is done. And there's a little phrase in that when God speaks to Ananias and he says, go, I've chosen this man. I have pursued him. I want him to see that, yes, he was completely wrong. I honestly think the suffer for my name thing is the moment of repentance 
when Paul has to deal with his life and who he is and fall before God and say, a proud, strong, zealous man, I was absolutely wrong. Would you forgive me? God passionately pursues us when we're absolutely wrong. It's really important to get that. God passionately pursues us when we're absolutely wrong in order to bring grace to you. It's easy to think God passionately pursues you when you're doing a good job. God passionately pursues you when you're absolutely wrong in order to bring grace to you because grace will change your life. Acting better will not. My question to you this morning is what core belief do you hold which is taking you in the completely wrong direction? For some of you, it's this. You have pondered, hmm, you have pondered for days, weeks, months, years, hmm, I wonder if there's a God. I wonder if this whole thing of Jesus is true. You have pondered. But you have a core belief that you hold, which goes something like, I, I really don't need that much help. I need a little bit. Sort of like one of Alan Love, one of my friends, you know Alan. He said once we treat God like we're playing tennis and we've knocked a ball over the fence and we go, hey, can I get a little help over here? Just enough help to throw the ball back in and then I'm fine. Some of you live with the core belief that what you need from God is just a little help over here. Just a little bit and then I'll be okay. And sometimes that little help comes in moments of extremity. You know, things are going really bad and you're screaming, I need a little help over here. I got it now. I'll play my own game, God. I'll call you when I need you. That is a core belief that's utterly flawed. Because what you and I need is not a little help over here. We need a full overhaul. You are made for God, heart and soul. We have walked away from him and he calls us back persistently and relentlessly in order to forgive us and to make us right with him. But it doesn't happen a little at a time. Change does. Entry into relationship with God does not happen a little at a time. It happens at the moment you go, I was stunningly and completely wrong. I don't need a little help. I need absolute and complete forgiveness because it's not the Chinese who are flawed. It's me. Some of you have skittered around that question for years and my encouragement to you is stop skittering. It's really not a hmm. What do you do when you discover that it was wrong, that you were wrong at, at core? You trash that belief. You repent, which means I turn away from it. And instead, you receive the grace that you need. Some of you, that's not your core belief that's wrong. It might be. But for others of you, this is what struck me in this midst of this, is that what do I do when I discover that I was absolutely wrong? Absolutely, about anything. I blame the Chinese. That's a metaphor. You get that, right? It goes back to the song, China, Tibet. You get I blame the Chinese. They were wrong. Sure, I'm a little wrong. What do you do when you're absolutely wrong? Your core beliefs toward your 
spouse, toward your culture, toward your friends, toward your world, toward yourself, toward your God? What do you discover when a core belief of that is wrong? Too often what I do is I blame someone else. I talk about it being a little bit off because I don't want to admit the notion that I might be horribly and completely wrong. And so I make it a little better. I make it a matter of fine-tuning. If you remember nothing else, remember this. God's not trying to fine-tune your life. It's not. This is not a self-improvement course. It's not nine tips to get a better life and not even a thousand tips to get a better life. God is, wants to, God, God is, wants to? Hmm. God wants to overhaul your life. It's not fine-tuning. It's a complete overhaul. It's not making you a little better. He's calling you to repent of core beliefs that are absolutely flawed about you, about him, and about the world. Receive grace and then begin heart change. This morning, let's open up our minds, our hearts, and our spirits to the notion that somewhere one of those core beliefs is wrong. And it's okay. This is the beauty of Christianity. This is why we can come out of, the, out of hiding. It's because it's okay to say I was wrong. See, why is it so hard to say we're wrong? Because if we're wrong, then what are we going to do? It's like, then I have to admit I'm screwed up. It's okay. The miracle of Christianity is Paul, or Jesus going to Paul and saying, yep, you. <laughs> I pursue you when you're absolutely wrong. Couldn't love you more. You're a mess. Couldn't love you more. This is how I think you need to see your life. This is how God views you. You're a mess. It's true. Couldn't love you more. Absolutely love you. Made you for myself. Yes, I know all the stuff. Don't hide it. I don't know why you hide it. I'm omniscient. I, I can see it all. Couldn't love you more. It's okay to come out of hiding. It's okay to admit the flaw. It's okay to admit not, oh, yeah, I tend to do this, but I am horribly wrong at core about this issue and say, God, would you trash this? Forgive me and recreate me anew. That's the power of Christianity. It's what sets it apart, quite honestly, in my opinion, from any other view of spirituality. It's not fine-tuning. It's not self-improvement. It's not even God giving you a little bit of improvement. It's certainly not, can I have a little help over here? It's being honest enough with who you actually are, getting forgiven, and then that grace changing your heart so that you actually become a different person, not somebody who's just trying harder. Communion gives us a picture of a core of Christianity. The night before Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body that's broken for you. He said, I want you to get something here. I'm about to die. I know you don't get it now. You'll get it later. I'm going to die for you. My body will be broken. Why? So that you can be made whole. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this cup is a new covenant, the new agreement in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink it. In this simple demonstration, what he said is, I will die for you. My body will be broken. My blood will be shed. If you receive that, I'm taking your place. I'm taking the, the penalty that's due you, and I will forgive you. And then I will come to reside within you, and I will change you from the inside out. This is the hope and the promise of Christianity. As you come to communion today, and if the communion service would come forward as I explain it, as the communion service come forward, I'm going to 
uh, serve them communion, and then they are going to move into stations around the room. There'll be five stations throughout the room. Once they move to those stations, you can move to any one of those. They will gather you into a group of around 12. They will serve you. They will pray with you, and then you'll eat together, and then you can make your way back to your seat. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, would you lead us in this time? Use this simple ritual of bread and wine or juice and allow it to be a moment of connection with you that you want us to recognize that our brokenness can be completely forgiven and healed and that you have come to offer us not a slight change in our life, but an overhaul that allows us to live in reality and to find grace. Push out of our hearts and our minds whatever today is fake reality. Fake reality we've contrived to protect ourselves. Convince us by this simple ritual that we don't need to protect ourselves anymore. For you, our God, has loved us, died for us, and come to live within us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You'll have a couple of moments while I serve the communion servers, and then they'll make their way around the room.